So this week, we're going to continue with our study on Ephesians, because we've all been enjoying it, right? The marathon study that it has been. Uh, and if you, can't, if you remember, last week, uh, Pastor Mark uh, spoke about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be continuing in chapter 5. Now, as you're all turning to Ephesians chapter 5, um, I want to remind you that Paul begins this chapter in Ephesians uh, exhorting or encouraging his audience to be imitators of God, right? So he, that's how he starts off. He's, he's uh, establishing a premise in which he is going to develop through the rest of the chapter. So um, Ephesians chapter 5, be imitators of God. So then once he establishes that premise, he, he follows that by describing what the lives of Christ imitators should look like, right? Um, Paul first describes lives, uh, or excuse me, he, he describes general behaviors that apply to everyone. And then he begins to describe what it means to imitate Christ within the home. And that's, that's where we're at right now. That's where we're going to pick up our study of Ephesians chapter 5. Um, so we're going to start with uh, chapter, or excuse me, verse 22. So chapter 5, verse 22 in Ephesians. So I think it's significant to, to, to notice here that he starts with the, possibly the most influential personal relationship within the home, and that is the marriage relationship. Now, let me just caution you with one thing. This, we are going to be speaking about the marriage relationship, so all of you who are not currently married at the useful information to you too. God's word applies to you. If you ever have been married or you ever plan on being married, this is useful information to you too. God's word applies to everybody. So, we're going to start with verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own, his own wife loves himself. Excuse me. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So, this is a loaded portion of scripture, right? Paul commanded that as imitators of Christ in his relationship with the church, husbands should love their wives and wives should respect their husbands. Now, 
Before I really begin to dissect this passage, I want to share a general observation uh, that I read about um, this week while I was studying in preparation for today's message. Uh, and the author's name is Francis Folks, but he just makes a, an interesting observation about this portion of Scripture. He says, It is significant that throughout this section, husbands and wives are reminded of their duties and not their rights. Husbands and wives are reminded of their duties and not their rights. I know as I read this passage just a moment ago, most if not all of the married people were listening intently. I know that your ears probably perked up a little bit, right? As you listen to God's word speaking about marriage. And uh, as you listen to the words Paul wrote, maybe you were thinking about your own marriage. I wanted to share this observation before I went any further, because you need to understand the significance of what Francis Folks was saying here about this passage, if you hope to receive what God has for you today. The significance is this. This passage is not about your spouse. This passage is about you. Let me say this again. This passage is not about your spouse. This passage is about you. As I read uh, the passage, I'm sure that there were husbands out there thinking, ooh, I hope she's listening to this. She really needs to hear this. And I'm sure that there were wives thinking probably the same thing or something very similar. Maybe even giving an elbow or two, right? Mm, did you hear that? Did you catch that part? A good marriage starts with each of you taking responsibility for you, right? Taking responsibility for you and your actions, regardless of whether or not you feel your spouse is doing the same. It's pretty challenging, isn't it? Okay, so that was my public service announcement for today, but now let's get going with the scripture. All right, so the first section here is dealing with wives, right? He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, before any of you start thinking that Paul's describing a family structure where the wife is somehow inferior or less significant or um, of less worth than the husband, let's go back one more verse to verse 21 in this chapter. Verse 21 says, uh, and Paul encourages, that um, we should be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So there's a little mutuality here that Paul is establishing before he gets into this section of Scripture. So there's something else here that Paul wants to pull out. In fact, it is Paul who establishes the equality of worth of men and women in Galatians 3.28. Because if you, if you think back to the context of when Paul was writing, it was a very patriarchal society, right? And men kind of dominated that society. But Paul kind of 
revolutionizes what Christians should, uh, how Christians should view the equality of men and women. Paul establishes that in the eyes of Christ, there is an equality of worth between men and women. And Galatians 3.28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. So this is not about women being inferior or of less worth, worth than um, men or wives of less worth than husbands. So now we've dis- described what this is not about. Let's uh, talk about what it is about. Paul uses the example of Christ's relationship to the church right here to illustrate the type of submission he is referring to. So if you look, if you still have your Bibles open, verse 23, what does it say? It says, for, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. You skip ahead to verse 24, it says, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands. Now, back in chapter 4, Paul used the same image to describe Christ's relationship to the church, didn't he? Pastor Mark spoke about it a few weeks ago. As the head directs the activity of the body, and this is what Pastor Mark kind of described, as the head directs the activity of the body, controls the activity of the body, so does Christ direct the activity of the church. So how does this apply here? God has designed the husband to be the head or the leader of the household. This is confirmed by the definition of the verb here that's used to subject oneself. Um, It refers to a submission involving a, a recognition of order or structure. So you're not necessarily submitting to the person, but you're submitting to the order or structure that God has designed for the family household. God has designed the structure of the family unit, whether you're just married or whether you're married with kids, in such a way that he has appointed the husband leader of the household. And this is done in the interest of preserving order and unity within the household. Because I may not be the world's greatest mathematician, but if two people have equal votes, there's going to be a lot of times where you hit a stalemate, right? One vote versus one vote you don't get anywhere. So God has designed the husband to be its head. So for the structure to work effectively, it becomes the responsibility of the wife to respect that position and that structure that God has established. Now, let me say this. Husbands, speaking to you husbands or even future husbands or former husbands out there, what Paul did not say is that you should abuse your position as leader or demand that your wife is not allowed to have her own opinion. That is not what Paul is saying. Wives, to all you wives out there, what Paul did not say is that you are only required to respect your husband if he earns it. What you cannot say is that your husband must 
perform his duties as husband and father to your satisfaction first, and then you'll respect him. One author called this unconditional respect. In fact, that author uh, is Dr. Emerson Egricks. Uh, and, and Dr. Egricks uh, wrote a book that uh, some of you may be familiar with, uh, based on verse 33 of this passage. It's called Love and Respect. Clever title, right? In the book, Love and Respect, Dr. Dr. Egricks uh, uses, or argues, excuse me, that God designed men to desire and need respect. So what he's saying here is that not only did God design this structure but he created us with certain needs and desires in order to function and fulfill our roles within this structure. So, God designed men to be the head of the household, and he gave us certain needs and desires um, that would motivate us to fulfill our roles as such. Women as well, or wives as well. So, I found it interesting when I was, you know, uh, when I went back to refresh myself on this book that um, this author, Dr. Egris, he, he refers to a national uh, study. And in the study, 400 men had to choose between two situations. The first situation was that they could, uh, they could be left alone and unloved in the world. Not a good situation. But the other situation their other option was to feel inadequate and disrespected by everyone. And they choose between those two. 74% of men said that if they had to choose, they would rather be alone and unloved than feel inadequate and disrespected. Isn't that interesting? It's because God wired us, designed us, wired us to fulfill a specific function within the family structure that he intended for us to live. Now, I would say that the media has done a great job destroying the image of the husband and the father. And we're made out to be uh, irresponsible, blundering fools who can't seem to get anything right. Is that true? But we've seen it, right? We've seen it in the media, and, you know, uh, in other words, they're saying that they are inadequate, husbands are inadequate and unworthy of respect, which is exactly the opposite of God's intention. Now, unfortunately, some of us do tend to live up to that reputation, but I don't believe that that's how God wired us. So, I would say this, wives... If you find yourselves talking down to your husband or treating him with contempt, you're denying him the very thing God wired him to desire or need to feel satisfied or fulfilled in his role. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Some wives feel it necessary to mother their husbands right along with their children. But again, if you think about it, this tends to make the husband feel as if they're being talked down to. Lack of respect. Now, if you're arguing, most likely 
Your husband is not going to take the time to articulate this to you. Right? Because we're not as good at sharing our feelings or describing our feelings as our wives are. Maybe some of us are. There's a few exceptions to the rule, but as I, as I studied this book, I felt the same way. What happens is, is sometimes, or most of the time, husbands will try to disengage from the conversation or the argument altogether to separate themselves. So I would say this. If you find yourself in a situation where your husband is kind of shying away from an argument and would rather separate himself and be alone, chances are that his need for respect is not being met. When we got married, uh, Holly and I talked about this. And we made an agreement that we have really honored to this day. And I'm really thankful. And um, I just really want to give you credit, honey, because I I really appreciate you. Um, The agreement was this. I promised I would never unilaterally make any important decisions. I'm not just going to wing it. I make sure to discuss every major decision regarding our family, regarding our finances, and give my wife an opportunity to share her opinion. And we do this. And she does share her opinion. And sometimes I say, you know what, you're right, let's go with your option. But if we ever come to a stalemate on a major decision... It is known and it's been established that I hold the trump card because God has designed that I am the head of the house and we have to come to a decision. Now, wives, there will be times where you're both equally convinced about taking different courses of action. This is where you will have to trust your husband and respect his position as leader of the household. That's not always easy. I know that there have been times where Holly has had reservations about the direction I was leading. I know it surprises you, but sometimes I can get a little passionate or carried away about things. And I know there's been times, you know, and I can read it in her that there are times where she has some reservations. But to her credit, she's always said, okay. I trust you and I respect your decision. Have I always been right? No. But we'll not recount all those tales right now. We'll just move along for sake of time limitations. But, you know, let me point this out. You know, ladies, if you're thinking, yeah, you're recounting all the times where your husband has been wrong or missed the boat on something, no one is ever always right. And there is a good possibility that there are more than two options and maybe your option might have been a flop too. No one is ever always right. But to her credit, my wife continues to respect my position as leader of the household. And she never holds it against me when I am wrong. She never holds it against me when I am wrong. In fact, she has a clever way of reminding me of past mistakes without ever directly calling me to the carpet on it. And she just says, well, maybe we should go this way because remember that happened the last time. But she never accuses me of being wrong and she always supports my decisions. And let me tell you this. 
Can I tell you how much that inspires and motivates me as a husband and a father? Guys, would that inspire and motivate you? Or does it inspire and motivate you? If, if you're trying to lead your family in a direction and your wife says, okay, I'm going to trust you and respect your decision. It motivates me. It makes me want to try extra hard to get things right and to do my best for her and my family all the more. Because that's how God wired me. All right, so husbands, you're not off the hook. Now it's your turn. And I don't know, I'm not saying that there's anything to this, but the, the section on the husbands is an awful lot longer than the section on the wives. So we got a lot of ground to cover. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Husbands ought to love their wives as they love according to verse 28, as they love their own bodies or as they love themselves. So why does Paul describe a love, the love a husband ought to have for his wife in this way? He gives two theological reasons for it. I don't know if you picked up on it, but we're going to circle back to it. Number one, the the very last um, verse that we read, verse 31 Paul is actually quoting Genesis uh, 2.24. Most of you probably picked up on that. The two have become one. Now, in the following verse, in verse 32, he admits that this is a mystery on how this works. But, on a deeper spiritual and emotional level, when two people get married, they do, in fact, become one. So that's the first reason. That Paul uses this illustration of loving your wife as you love your own body or as you love yourself. Because, in fact, in a certain way, you are loving your own body or loving yourself. Second theological reason that he gives here. Um, As in the first section, Paul uses Christ's relationship to the church as an illustration. uh, Starting with the second half of verse 29 and verse 30, he says... He's basically saying Christ loved his own body, the church, the body of Christ. So as Christ loved his own body, as he loved us, we love our own bodies as we love our wives. There's a parallel there. And again, as we get into this, um, as with the first section of this passage, Paul uses Christ's relationship to the church to, to flesh this out, to illustrate what he's really talking about and the type of love he's referring to here. So, verse 25, what does he say about Christ and his relationship to the church? He loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So what he's talking about here is a sacrificial love, right? It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water, with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He sacrificed himself in order to save her, the church, the body of Christ. Sacrificial love. Uh, And the language here really is reminiscent of the marriage supper of the Lamb recorded in Revelation 19, where the church is presented as a spotless bride. Right? So verse 29. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. He nourishes and cherishes the church. In other words, and let's just expand upon this, he keeps the church in a protective way. He fosters growth within the church, spiritual growth within each and every one of us. And he refines his body with care and affection. Amen? So husbands, initial observation is that the kind of love Paul is describing here is not a romantic love. So I'm not saying that romance should not be a part of marriage, but if your definition of love begins and ends there, my guess is that you're in trouble. According to Dr. Egrick, unlike men, women who feel unloved will want to engage their husbands. I don't know if husbands, if you've made this observation or not, but they want to talk about it. They will want to share their feelings, right? Women, do you like to share your feelings, how you're feeling about things? Men, have you noticed this? He says, Dr. Egger says that in these moments, her heart longs to resolve things and to reconcile. Is that true, ladies? So, as with husbands, or excuse me, as with wives, husbands, if your wife is behaving in this way, chances are her need for love is not being met. Now, According to the Greeting Card Association, I had no idea there was such thing. But, you know, the Internet has all the information you could ever want or need, right? So there is a Greeting Card Association out there. And according to this association, women purchase an estimated 80% of all greeting cards. I know, surprise, right? Women spend more time choosing a card than men and are more likely to buy several cards at once. So think about it, husbands. What kind of card does your wife prefer to receive? I am willing to bet it's not the you have a nice you have nice penmanship card. Oh, that is true. She has way better penmanship than me. It's not the you are quite crafty card. It's not the You're a good friend card. And it's not even the honey, I respect you card. What is it? It's the I love you card, right? The I love you card. So remember, the love we as husbands are to give our wives 
is sacrificial. It nourishes and it cherishes. In other words, it is my duty to ensure that not only my wife's physical needs are being met, because it's, it's really easy for us to go out and earn a paycheck and say, hey, I'm providing a paycheck. You have food on the table and a roof over your head. But that's not enough. That's not the kind of love Paul is describing here. And that is not the type of love that Christ showed the church. That's only a part of it. So it's not only to ensure that my wife's physical needs are being met, but that I should minister to her emotional and spiritual needs as well. And I should be willing to put her needs before my needs and my wants. Especially my wants. How many of you have read the, the book, uh, The Five Love Languages? Anybody read that one? Dr. Gary Chapman? Uh, my wife and I read this, the book together early on in our marriage. And I discovered that my wife's love language... See, so husbands, if you've read this book, this should have been valuable information for you. My wife's love language, or the thing that speaks to her the most, is physical touch. Again, I'm not talking about the romantic kind. What do I do to express that love? I hug her. I put my arm around her. Even in church, you'll see me put my arm around my wife. I hold her hand, and one of her favorites, I snuggle with her every opportunity I get. I do. It's not once a day. It's not once a week. It's every opportunity I get. My wife also likes to connect in conversation. It is important to her that I try my best to give her my undivided attention. Do I hit this mark 100% every time? No. But it's the effort. I try to give her my undivided attention. And there's certain times of day where I can expect conversations to arise. I've learned this. I know the pattern, and I am ready for it. We generally talk on the phone as we're driving home from work. That's, that's number one. We will talk when I walk in the door. Number two, we talk over dinner. Number three, we talk after the kids are bed are in bed. Excuse me. Number four, we talk as we are getting in bed. Number five, and frequently my wife also enjoys adding a few more thoughts after we have kissed goodnight and I am just beginning to doze off. I especially like that one. She has learned that it, and I'll give her credit for this too, she has learned that there's one time where I'm just not going to pick up on conversation, and that's during uh, a Brewers, Badgers, or Packers game. I'm trying. I really am. But I know what our conversation times are, husbands, and I try my best not to miss them. When my wife and I first met, and you can ask her, one of the very first things I did, and we were still very much in the beginning of our dating stage, one of the very first things I did was to buy a devotional for couples. Again, I need to minister to my wife's spiritual needs, right? 
I pray with my wife, and I pray for my wife. We read the Bible together. We have our appointed um, devotional times. And we also read other books together that contribute to our spiritual growth. Since we've gotten married, we've read probably at least half a dozen, maybe more, books on marriage. Because why? Because I want our marriage to be successful, and I want to be able to minister to my wife. And I've always made sure that we are attending a church that helps us grow in our relationship with Christ. Now, not necessarily trying to toot my own horn here, because I'm sure if you asked her, I do have my faults. But I'm trying to give some practical examples of how I demonstrate sacrificial love toward my wife that both nourishes and cherishes. Now, I recognize that this is, to some people, a very challenging message. Especially because the first part, and the part of the wives, is not very culturally acceptable. It's just not the way our culture works. And it's not the message that we get. But if these principles are lived out and practiced the right way, your marriage and your home will function the way God intended. So love and respect are essential for a marriage to function according to God's design. Wives should respect their husbands as leaders of the household. And that means, husbands, you gotta, you got to live up to that position as leader of the household. Husbands should love their wives with a sacrificial love that nourishes and cherishes. If you're doing anything less than that, you need to work on it. It's no longer an excuse just to say, well, I'm a guy, so... What do you expect? I expect you, and Paul expects you, and God expects you to love your wife with a sacrificial love that nourishes and cherishes. Now, as we're coming to a close, I need to give one additional disclaimer here. Just because we have focused on the husband's need for respect and the wife's need for love does not mean that we do not need to show love to the husband or respect to the wife. What Paul is saying here is that God designed each of us to play a different role within the marriage relationship. And that within that relationship, God commands us to support each other in these roles. He's designed us that way. He's wired us that way. And we need to support each other. So I'd like to leave you with one additional example that illustrates how God has designed husbands and wives with unique needs and desires. And again, I know I, I feel like the um, unconditional respect is a little bit farther reach for us to understand than the unconditional love. So I'm going to use uh, an example of that here. Many of us are familiar with uh, Aretha Franklin's version of the song Respect, right? R-E-S-P-E-C-T. 
find out what it means to me. Right? Got that one? It's in your mind now? Now notice I said version of the song. Because Aretha might have been the one to make it popular, but she wasn't the one who wrote it. Otis Redding, a husband, wrote that song and originally recorded it in 1965. And his line said, what you want, baby, you got it. In other words, I'm going to give it to you. What you need, baby, you got it. I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. And all I'm asking for is a little respect when I come home. A husband's need for respect. God's wired us that way. Amen? Now, as the worship team comes back up here, I really, um, I really feel like the first step of really um, moving towards being um, supportive of each other's roles in marriage is that we bring it before God right here, right now. And allow God to speak to us and allow God to work on us, in us, and through us. Amen? So I want to allow time for that. So if you've been listening to this message and you really feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to you um, about some aspect of your marriage, I don't know what it is, but God knows what it is. The Holy Spirit knows what it is. If God is speaking to you, it's because He wants to do something. And I believe that the marriage relationship is so crucial, so important to the family and to the fabric of our society that we need to humble ourselves and allow God to do what He wants to do within us today. So I want to give a little bit of time for us to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So if God is speaking to you, especially... This is your time. Let God do some work in you. But I would also say this. If you know somebody else whose marriage is struggling for one reason or another, this is time, this is an opportunity for you to pray for them. Maybe they just don't understand this biblical principle. It's, it's not easy and it's not really uh, culturally accepted in some ways. But God designed men and women God designed marriage. And as with everything else, He designed it to function a certain way. Hallelujah, Lord. We just thank You for this time, O Lord God. And this may have been a challenging message for some people, O Lord God. But Lord, You only have good intentions for us. You only have good intentions for our marriage relationship and our households, O Lord God. And You want... Uh, you have designed us to fulfill certain roles within that household, Lord God, in order for it to function the way you intend. So God, I just pray, Lord, that for all of us, Lord God, that we would take something away from this message today, O oh Lord God, and, and that we would take action upon it. Lord, whether it's continuing what we're already doing, whether it's uh, changing what we're doing, whether it's uh, maybe we're not doing anything and we need to start doing something, But God, help us to get intentional about our marriages, Lord God. And Lord, I believe, Lord God, that as we 
are imitators of Christ and we model our lives according to your word, O Lord God, that we will see benefits, that we will be blessed. God, I pray for each marriage represented here today, even the future ones. God, I pray over them, Lord God. If there is strife in the house, O Lord God, if there is pressure, if there is stress, if there is division, O Lord God, I pray that you would bring healing and bring peace in Jesus' name. I pray, O Lord God, where communication has broken down, that it would be renewed and and restored and that those avenues of communication would be reopened. Lord, I pray for wives, if if they're struggling to really understand how to show that uh, the respect for the position of the head of the household, Lord God, that you would help them. For husbands, Lord God, if they don't see, Lord, um, how their love needs to change or grow toward their wives, I pray you would help them, O Lord God. Lord God, I pray that you would strengthen each and every marriage that's represented here today, O Lord God, as we live out our lives according to your will. Hallelujah. I pray, O Lord God, that each and every married person here would be blessed today with a renewed sense of hope for the future of their marriage, their relationship, their household. And I thank you, God, for being intentional about this, Lord God, for helping us to understand how you've designed the marriage to work. Lord, thank you for being here today. Thank you for speaking to certain people's hearts, Lord God, and revealing things. Now, Lord, I pray that we would walk as imitators of Christ as we go forth from this place. Bless your people as they go out and they start a new week, O Lord God. Let your spirit, your presence be with them. In Jesus' name we pray.